Well, I'm, like I said, I'm really excited to share with y'all. Uh, I appreciate y'all lending me um, your trust. Um, let, me, let me just pray for us, and then we'll get started. Um, Jesus, uh, we thank you for who you are. Um, and God, we thank you that you reach, um, you reach out and you reveal yourself and you speak to us, Lord. And we ask that today you would just do the miracle that it is when we actually get to understand uh, your truth, God. And I pray that um, through, um, I don't know, the, the testimony that you've given me and then also through your word, Jesus, that you would um, reveal yourself more deeply to all of us, God, and that um, yeah, we would love you rightly, Jesus. Um, I pray that uh, the, the words um, would, would be clear um, and that uh, I know anything I say that's weird, people will just forget. Uh, the stuff that's like really of you, God, um, would shine through. Um, yeah, we love you, Lord, and we just lift you up. Um, praise things in your name. Amen. Um, so today we're going to be going through Luke uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, which is really kind of like the nativity story. We don't, uh, Matthew has, um, has the Magi, so we don't, we don't have that aspect of it here in Luke. Um, but uh, we're going to go through that story, and um, really, I think, I think that there are often times in our lives where like, we just hear the same story over and over and over again. We get to a point where we're kind of like hardened to it because we just heard it so many times. And I, I feel like that was kind of um, happened to me. Um, and, and not only that, I kind of go through this really rough season. And it was here um, at the incarnation, right? The word incarnation uh, means God becoming man. The, like the, the Spanish word carne, right, literally means like meat. Right, it's a God becoming meat, God becoming flesh. That's what we see, uh, that, that is what the incarnation is. And it was in this story that God, um, when he saw that my heart was kind of hard in one way, um, God found a way to get to my heart. And that's kind of the, that's kind of the Christmas story, is that like, we had hardened ourselves, we had, like, we, had, we had left God, but God found a way to get to us. Right? And so that's, that's really where we're going today. I, I titled it A Thrill of Hope, The Words from O Holy Night. Because it's, it's in this story that we, we, we finally, like, think, could it possibly be true that God really is who he says he is, right? Um, so we're going to go there. I'm going to go down at least, like, 75 rabbit trails. Uh, so you're just going to kind of bear with me as we do that. Um, but that's kind of where we're going today. So I, I am a high school uh, ge- geography and history teacher. So I always start off my classes with... A fact of the day. So uh, you guys are just going to have to, like, join in on that. So our fact of the day today is... Like, what do most scholars believe was the population of Bethlehem in the first century? So around the time of Jesus was born. So this is not rhetorical. Anybody have any guesses? What, what do they think might have been the, the population? 50,000. 50,000? 1,000. 1,000. 1,000. 1,000. 200. And that is probably the closest estimate. Okay, we think it's somewhere between two and 500. Right? Based on what we know about like villages that were just kind of like it. We, don't have an act, we, don't, we never actually have the results of that census. Right, that we're about to talk about. Sorry, I keep on bumping things. I don't know if that's causing problems. Uh, but we think it's somewhere like two to five hundred. Right, you can see that's Bethlehem today. It's actually like in the Palestinian-controlled territory. Um, and actually, interesting, slightly interesting historical nerdy fact. I've been to Bethlehem, uh, and this this is the Church of the, the Nativity. I, I don't. Oh yeah, you can't see me online. This is the Church of the Nativity here. You can see. And one thing I just love about it, I think it's just so cool, is that you can see that door. Like it's this huge, massive, like complex. But the door is like this tall, right? So that when you enter in, just like Jesus, you have to humble yourself and get low 
to be able to enter in. Just like Jesus entered in the world, he humbled himself. And I just think that's like a really cool thing. Um, right, so anyways, uh, that is Church Nativity in, in Bethlehem. Yeah, so it's a really small village. Uh, right. Uh, so let's jump right in. Uh, here we go. So in verse, verses 1 through 3, it says, In those days, Caesar Augustus... Oh, I can see it up there. Right. I'm just stop looking around. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and just start right off on a rabbit trail. Um, so this passage um, is a passage that secular historians say proves the Bible is not true. Right? They say this because um, Quirinius, so there's a, an early um, historian in the first century. His name is Josephus. He's like probably one of the, the best-known historians in the, in the Roman world, right? And Quirinius, uh, in one of his writings, he's, he dates uh, Quirinius becoming governor of, C- uh, of Syria to the year 6 AD, right? So here's like the year zero, right? You have, I'm trying to do this like a meteorologist backwards. So here's like BC over here. Here's the year zero. Here's 6 AD, right? And that's when, he, that's when Quirinius became governor, according to Josephus, right? But we also know that Jesus was born during the reign of Herod the Great, and Herod the Great died in 4 BC. That's a 10-year gap, right? So, so secular historians say the Bible's not true, right? Because this is obviously wrong, right? Um, and so there's a lot of questions I want to look at here, but for just a second, here, there's a, a couple possibilities for how we might, like, uh, interact with this. One, uh, Josephus could have been wrong, right? <laughs> uh, secular historians assume, all of them assume Luke was wrong, but never that, that Josephus was wrong. Josephus was born in the year 31 AD. Right? He wasn't there. He's only as good as his sources were. Right? And Luke, in, ch- in chapter 1 of Luke, we hear Luke say that he painstakingly went through to verify all the facts. Right? And, and Luke didn't have to say this stuff. Right? He could have just said, like, oh, well, Jesus was born. But he specifically said this stuff so people could date it. Right? Yeah. And so uh, there's just a, a decent chance like Josephus just like got his source from he, he didn't like intend to get it wrong, but someone told him and he just had it wrong. Right? That's just one possibility. Another possibility um, is that we found a document. This is, this is kind of wild. Like we found a document um, about 20 years ago that says it doesn't say who, but it said someone served as the governor of Syria twice. Like they were governor and then they weren't and then they were again. So maybe I mean there's a I mean if it's in the first century, there's a decent chance that was Quirinius, and this was just the second time he served as governor. Right? And he had served before when Herod the Great was, was king. Right? That's another possibility. Another possibility, like the word, um, the, the, the Greek word that they use in the Bible where it says it took place while Quirinius was governor, that can also be translated to took place before Quirinius was governor, right? depending on the context. And most people say it was probably while, but uh, it could have been before he was governor of Syria. Right? So anyways, all, all that to be said, I think there's like a deeper question. right? This question of what do we as believers, like uh, who... who we want to know that the Bible is true. What do we do when secular history conflicts with the Bible, right? Um, so there's a couple things uh, that I want to I want to suggest. Maybe what we can like think of as we do this. Okay. So first, um, one one thing is that like let me, let me make sure I'm, I'm I know where I'm at here, uh, right? Uh, is that sorry? There we go. All right. So when we hear secular historians speaking, right, we can be very intimidated. By some of their conclusions. They say these things very confidently, as though it is like 100% fact. Um, however, um, the problem is not that they're like completely logical. The problem oftentimes, and I'm not saying every time, like we, secular historians oftentimes are right about things, but the problem is a lot of times they make assumptions 
that they build all of their like their their conclusions on that potentially are like very different. Like like I said, they assume that Christians have something called confirmation bias, meaning that we only interpret data in a way that like proves what we already believe. We would never possibly interpret things that threaten our beliefs, right? And, and that's their assumption. They assume that that guy Josephus was right and Luke was wrong. They assume that any biblical writer, right, if they're writing for religious reasons, they are going to twist facts to fit their story, right? But the, the problem is they assume, like, that Christians and biblical writers have this confirmation bias, but they act as though they have no confirmation bias. But their worldview, the worldview of secular historians, is that of, it's naturalistic, so it doesn't believe in miracles, right? And it's skeptical, meaning it doesn't trust religious people, right? That's an assumption of all secular historians, right? It's a skeptic, I mean, and that's like the nature of science and history, is to be skeptical. You don't believe something until you prove it. But, uh, but they have their own confirmation bias. And I think when we, like, I think we do need to listen. We need to, like, engage with secular historians, right? However, we have to be careful to accept their conclusions without questioning their assumptions, right? They assume a lot of things about, about the world. Um, and, and if we just, like, take those willy-nilly, we, it's really easy to be, like, just, like, you know, we, we've got a hook in our mouth that's like a fish, and we just run with it because we don't realize that there's all these assumptions, okay? So, two, um, another thing, uh, there have been a number of times where secular historians have said, oh, well, the reason the Bible isn't true is because of this, and then later, like, history has shown, that, like, new, new evidence has come out that shows that they're totally wrong. So, for instance, these are just two, um, they've said, two, two different people, they said, we know the Bible isn't true because... Um, these people, there's no historical evidence for them ever existing. One is Pontius Pilate, and one is King David. They were like, there's no evidence. But in the last 30 years, in 1993, they found a tablet that like lists rulers in Judea, and Pontius Pilatus right is right there. He's there, and like you know, secular historians kind of left with their foot in their mouth, like, oh well, well we didn't really say that, you know. Uh, and then the same thing happened with with David. They said there's no evidence that David actually existed. Right? And then they found um, this super old, it's called a stella, this like, big rock, right? and it was actually encased in ash. And they dated the ash, and it went back to like 300 years after the time of David. And so it's like, this couldn't have been faked. It was like actually covered in ash, like nothing could have been changed. And so anyways, uh, like, that's been proved. Also, you know, they say, oh, well, there could never have been on the day that Jesus died. They said the sky went dark when Jesus died. Like, oh, that's ridiculous, right? That's their assumptions, right? Um, there have, been, uh, there have been accounts in Egypt, like people who had never heard of Jesus, right, who, who account on that same day, at that same time, a solar eclipse happened, right, proving that the biblical narrative is true, right? Um, and so, for, so I just say that to say, like, a lack of evidence is not evidence, right? They would say, because we don't have evidence, they would say, that means it's not true. But a lack of evidence is, is just that. Right, you know, y'all following me? I don't know if I'm, yeah, getting getting down in the wind too much here. So, and then and then I just want to say that there's there's a lot of like really like learned historical people who believe that the Bible is true. Right, and there's a lot of critical arguments for the Bible compared to any other ancient text. The Bible is like wildly more more like has been found to be more historically accurate than like yeah. any other ancient book by far. It's like yeah. it's kind of a joke when you like when you compare the Bible with like other ancient books like. It's just, it's just not even not even close, right? And it's it's been used throughout history to like for, in very meaningful ways to give context to what ancient life was like for historic events. Sorry, I'm making sure I'm not doing crazy stuff here. Um, and the, the Bible's been found to be true in, in, in large part from where civilization originated to like very specific historic like 
people, like, you know, like the pharaohs, these people talk about the Old Testament, like, with, later we find, like, secular historians find evidence, oh yeah, that guy lived right then, right? Um, and so, so, most criticisms of the Bible's, like, historical authenticity, like, generally they're, like, either, like, very minute details, or they're, like, we lack evidence. And again, lacking evidence is not evidence. Um, so, I could go on and on about, I think, the strength of the Bible's historical source, but that's like uh, a rabbit trail that could uh, be like an entire day to itself. And so I don't want to go thick into that week because uh, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. But this is like something that really um, is, has been like important to me, right? And so my, my last point here is that regardless, like, there is never a point where we will have 100% certainty about the Bible, right? It requires an element of faith. Okay, there's, we, we can never know for 100% sure that, that it's true. We can never know 100% sh- sure that God is true until we meet him one day, right? Um, and so there's an element of faith that's like, it's like mandatory. And I think that if your faith, like, I think a lot of people, um, especially myself, like growing up, a, a number of my friends who grew up kind of in, in the church, like faith is not, their faith is like based on these arguments and these facts. And I think those things can be good. But if your faith is entirely based on like historical facts and not on knowing the person of Jesus, I'm not going to say you're not a Christian. Uh, maybe, I, don't, I don't know. But I, I, will say, I will say you are missing out. Right? You're, you're missing out. You're like kind of missing the point. Um, and like in, in 1 Corinthians, oh, I might have skipped. Like, I'm going to miss this slide or two. Hey, it is. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 45, it says that uh, Paul says, My message and my preaching were not. With wise words, right? persuasive words, on purpose. That's what not what I did. But it was with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom but on God's power. Okay? So there are, there are two ways you can kind of like tell the validity of Scripture. You can look at these like historical events, but then you can also see, does it have power to move in my life? Right? Um, and I think, I think that if you're only relying on, the, on that first method of like looking at the dates, right, then you're, you're really missing out. And this happened to me a number of years ago. I grew up never really like into apologetics, never really into, um, never really into like trying to defend the faith. But at some point, I kind of felt myself getting tugged into some of like our culture's like secular humanism. This I, oh, we're, we're going to tell. I, I kind of being, I felt like I was pulled towards these ideas that our culture like proposes out there, and I like. Um, realized that was the case, and so I like really wanted to defend against them. And I got to a point where every single time I read the Bible, instead of really going to like interact with Jesus, I was looking for arguments. Right? I was looking for for oh, this is this is like a talking point where I could say to this like secular humanist person or uh, this like uh, secular historian. And every time I would read, instead of like really reading, I would just like be looking at the history. And when I'm sitting, I don't know if y'all do this. I, I'm, I can't almost guarantee most of us who can drive do this. Uh, but when you're sitting in your car driving, like instead of like prayer or like worship, I'm sitting there like listening to podcasts that like are about like um, defending the faith. And I'm just thinking about that. And, and at some point, I felt like God just spoke to me and said, Brian, if you have all these facts that you like are missing out on me, then you have nothing. Right? You've missed the entire point. And so I just, I just, I do, I think it's really important to engage the conversation about the Bible. If you're, if you're someone who struggles with um, like science or history and how it interacts with our faith, I think it's very important to engage that because if, if Christianity isn't true, then it's not true. You know, I believe that it is true, and so I think it is going to hold up. That being said, I think um, there's this whole other side of it. If you, like, if your faith is all philosophic proofs and and facts, um, 
and, and it doesn't have Jesus, then you, you're missing out, right? So, okay, that was a, a deep rabbit hole. Not going to stop going down that one. Um, uh, but I do want to point out one, one tiny little thing before we move on to the next section. Um, we, we're still in the first three verses, right? Um, so remember uh, where we're at is, like, is, uh, is, is the census and all this stuff. Just, just for a second, God could have chosen a girl who was from Bethlehem, right? Instead, he orchestrated this like massive thing that inconvenienced the entire Roman Empire, right? Moved all these people, involved all these different people. He could have made it way more simple. Right? But for some reason, this is how God chose to do it. And, and I don't want to go too far um, down the Calvinist rabbit hole either. Um, but I just want to say that like, in times where things are like, kind of wacky or crazy, like maybe like 2020, I don't know, right? Um, like God maybe, and I would suggest, like, is using circumstances to bring himself glory. And in a, in a more convicting um, way of saying that, I think it's like this is like primarily convicted to myself, is that, when we get really annoyed at being inconvenienced by changes in society, like, I think potentially uh, we're missing something. Like, instead of, like, just always being, like, annoyed when you're, like, in the longest line in the grocery store or when you have to do these different things, like, potentially, like, uh, we should be looking for what God is doing in those times instead of, like, thinking how it's just inconveniencing us, right? Because a lot of people are inconveniencing them here, um, and this is, I think, the greatest story that's ever been told. So, all right, let's, uh, that's the last, no, the second to last rabbit hole for now. Um, so, uh, all right, oh yeah, I said God's plan is kind of like a, how, anybody ever like play that old game mousetrap? Like, oh, this one little thing, you like push this one marble and it goes all over the place, all so you can catch a mouse. It's kind of, sometimes God plans, God's plan feels like that, right? Um, so, all right, let's, let's, uh, let's continue. All right, so now we're going on to the next section, verse 4 through 7. So, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came uh, for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. Um, so, again... Uh, before we before we really jump in and consider Jesus, for just a second, I want to consider Mary and Joseph. Okay, um, I'll give a little context. Uh, it, for me personally, one of my core desires in life is for my life really to like make a meaningful, significant impact on the world, right? And that's that's one of our one of our uh, our core values here. Like, know Jesus, love people, impact your world, right? Um, but I think sometimes um, in the culture we live in. Going about that, we can kind of like go about that in a way that maybe is like uh, off from God's plan. And let me let me let me tell you what I mean there. So our culture often tells us that if we want something, we have to like aggressively pursue it, like looking at nothing else. There's like thousands of, of like catchy titled books and podcasts that their basic message is that if you aren't actively aggressively pursuing after your goals, then they're going to pass you by. Right? It kind of appeals to our FOMO. Right? Um, but um, and, and I do think there's something to be said for really, like, aggressively pursuing after goals. Like, we see biblical precedent for really, like, trying to do things. However, in this picture, in this story, we're getting a picture of Mary and Joseph, who are these, like, two simple people who are just going about their basic lives and trying to do so in a way that honors God. And these two teenagers, probably, right, who weren't, like, hadn't read all these, like, eight-step books 
They have impacted the world more than any of us, well, than anyone who any of us have ever met or ever will meet, right? Um, and so I, my, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say here is that um, they made more of an impact, not because they tried really hard, but because they were humble and because they were obedient, right? Um, and there, like I said, there's biblical precedent for really laboring for the gospel, but in this story from Mary and Joseph to the shepherds, we see, like, that God chose to move some people. And that's, that's really, if you want your life to make an impact, then God is the one who really has to do the work, right? Not us. You can work so hard, but if God doesn't, like, if that God's not in it, then nothing will happen. It's all, you're going to be forgotten, right? Um, we may be forgotten anyways. That's, that's okay, right? Um, but, um, like, we're never really told why God chose Mary and Joseph. Like I said, he could have chosen somebody probably already in Bethlehem. But we do see their reaction to, to the angel's message, right? When, they, when God tells them, like, difficult, awkward, weird things to do, their response is, like, you can tell they kind of, like, struggle with it. But ultimately, their response is, like, let it be as you say, God. Like, my daughter, we read, like, my three-year-old, we read this book, and whenever, like, the angel comes and talks to Mary Ann and Joseph, for both of them, it's like a kid's book, right? So it's kind of like a translation or something. But, but for both of them, my daughter knows after the angel tells Mary and Joseph what to do, their response is, okay. Like, that's what my daughter says, right? And so I say that. Uh, hi, Joe. Uh, she hope she's listening. Uh, but I say all that to say that if we really want to make an impact, when God brings really difficult things to us, things that are awkward, right? When God says, go share the gospel with your boss. When God says, hey, go give this, like, really large amount of money that you're like maybe saving for something for yourself to this person who might waste it, right? Uh, when God tells us to do these like, difficult things, let's say, okay, right? Um, and I, I think we should be careful. Uh, we should be careful to, to question ourselves. Are we more concerned with greatness? Or are we more concerned with obedience, right? It's not, it's not wrong to want to be great. As I said, that's like part of Part of our, our, our motto is to really impact the world around us. And I think God puts that in us. But if we put that before obedience, then I think we're missing. So, um, all right. Uh, we're going to move on. on I want to say more, but uh, we're going to go, go to the next section. Okay. Um, 8 through 12. It says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Okay, here's the good stuff. All right, so uh, so one, I just love that God chose shepherds, right? Uh, I don't know, like, if, uh, like, I love, I love that one of my favorite, like, uh, sayings in the Bible is that God chose the weak things of the world to, to humble the strong, that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame uh, the wise, right? Um, and you may already be familiar with some of this history, so sorry if I'm repeating it, but shepherds typically weren't like the highest people in Jewish society. So one, okay, uh, and this is, this is, I just heard this from other people, so I can't like 100% verify if this is true, but my understanding is like that the education system in ancient Jewish society was like everybody like all, most males actually like all like tried to go to school for a while, but essentially there was this like kind of system that as you either ran out of money or you like weren't really that smart, people just started to drop off, right? So essentially only like the smartest uh, made it to the like finish line, right? And uh, the people who dropped off first became shepherds, right? So 
these dudes were the poorest and uh, we'll, be, we'll be kind and say not the brightest of the bunch, right? They're the people who like, weren't passing their tests at all, right? The people, like, uh, I'm, I'm in a classroom every day, the people who like, you're like talking to and you like, you, like say, write your name, like, what? I don't right? So people who don't really know what's happening. Right? But beyond that, okay, uh, even beyond that, in Jewish society, remember, in, in, in Judaism, one of the Ten Commandments is to honor the Sabbath. And because of the nature of their job, shepherds cannot honor the Sabbath. They have to work seven days a week. And so the religious elite in Jerusalem had declared them unclean. They could never go make sacrifices in the temple. They were like not allowed to engage in, their, in the, the faith of their fathers, right? Because they were poor and not so bright. And that, those are the people that God like chose to first announce the coming king to, are these people. And I, I like to think, like, who is that in our society? Like, who are the people who, like, religious people tend to look down on, right? Um, I mean, I, I'm not going to, like, elaborate too much here, but I wonder if, like, like, truck drivers, people who work every single weekend, and we're like, well, you could get a new job if you wanted to and really come to church, right? Like, religious people tend to look down on those people, right? Uh, because they don't come to church. They don't make it a priority. They really should, right? Um, like, I, I just think in your mind, who are the people in our society who are the religious elite? Like, uh, I don't know, maybe us or something, like, tend to look down on, right? Um, and I hope, I hope we aren't that, right? I'm not, not trying to imply that. I just, like, want to convict us a little bit here, um, right? But I love, I love that those are the people who Jesus came to. From the very get-go, it's like any pride that we possibly have, thinking that, like, we deserve God, is wiped away. God didn't come to us. Like, and I like to, one, one thing that's, like, kind of a useful technique when you're reading the Bible is to think, what would I have done if I was in God's place? Because I think when you ask, we ask that, we just realize like how far off we are. Like if I was in God's place, I'm like, huh? Who would I go to? I would go to like the high priest. I might go to like a Roman official because I could, if I could just get that Roman official, then like all these things could happen. Jesus, when when God came, he's like, who should I go to? Who's the very very best person to go? Let's go to this shepherd, right? This guy that no one likes. This guy that everyone else has rejected, right? And I just love that. Um, so. Uh, but the, the, the crux, I think, of this passage is, um, is it says, I, the angel comes to the shepherds, right? And he says, I bring you good news uh, that will cause great joy for all the people. Okay? Um, so, what's the good news? What's the good news that the angel brings? Right? Um, and I mean, obviously in the story, Jesus, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is always the answer. Right? Uh, if you ever have a question in Sunday school, Jesus is the answer. But, um, but what, what does that really mean? Right? Um, and, and I, I want to I wanna look at it maybe like in a different way than we like possibly looked at it before. Like obviously, uh, for people who like maybe are more familiar with the church, they would like immediately answer like, well, the gospel. Gospel literally means good news that Jesus came to like save us from our sins, which is true. But um, in my life, um, I kind of like had uh, an experience where I, my heart was hardened in some ways to the gospel, and God used this to kind of like. Um, break in the back door. And I, so I kind of want to like shine, the, shine a light on another side of the gospel and try to like communicate this in a new way. And so um, I'm going to communicate this way. Let's see if you can distract me. So what, what is it that, what's the good news that Jesus, like that, that is coming with Jesus? It is God is different than we think he is. That's the good news. Like God is different than we think he is. Okay, and so let's, let's look at that. Um, so historically, we see lots of thoughts 
about God, right? All throughout history, you know, even right now, you all have thoughts about God, whether you know it or not, whether you're an atheist or like where are you, you have thoughts about like how the universe is ordered, right? Um, in, in Greek philosophy, in, in Greek religion, right, they always had this like pantheon of gods. But the way that they, generally speaking, conceived of God is that God is everything that we are not. He's the opposite of us. God is all the omnis. He is omniscient, meaning he knows everything. Yes, omniscient. Yes, omniscient. He knows everything. Omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is uh, um, omnipresent. He's everywhere. And we are like the opposite of all those things. We're in one place. We're not that smart. And we're not that powerful. Right? That's, that's how like the, the Greek philosophy kind of like defined the gods. They were everything that we are not. Right? Okay, and then I think we have a, a greater revelation of who God is in Jewish theology. Jewish theology, it, the, the centrality of God is that God is holy. Right? God is holy. And I think, I think we see that really well. There's one story in the Old Testament that like, really shows the holiness of God. Okay? This is like the Ark of the Covenant where God like, resided. Right? And they were moving at one time, and the Ark like, started to tip. And a guy went to stop it. Not because he like wanted to do something bad, because he just didn't want it to fall in the mud. And just, even though it was like completely innocent, he touched it. He was struck dead. That is how holy God is, right? And that's the God of the Old Testament. We do see that God is loving in the Old Testament. He is willing to make covenants with people. He like essentially like like has a deal, right, with different people. He like actually reaches out, right? So we have the, we have like the Greek gods who like God is just the opposite of us. And we see in Judaism. We see a God who's holy, but he is connected to us, right? Um, but in Christ, we see a whole nother level of the goodness of God, right? Um, in, in Hebrews 1, uh, it says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through prophets at many times. I'm going to skip down uh, to verse 3. Uh, but now, we, sorry, but in these days, we, he has spoken to us to his son. Down to verse 3, it says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. In Jesus, we see a greater revelation of who God is. He is not who we thought he was. God reveals that he is near to the broken. That is the good news, that God is not ashamed to be associated with us in our weakness. He's not ashamed... To, to, he's, he's not so holy that he's unwilling to like get down literally in the dirt. He was born like very possibly like immediately like dropped in the dirt in this like stall, right? Uh, so he's not he's not like we, we knew that God was like slow to anger, rich in loving kindness, right? That's like how God named himself in the Old Testament, but we didn't really know like how far does that really go, right? It's kind of like your parents say they love you, but you're like, how far can I test them until their love runs out, right? Uh, and here we see, like, the great love of Christ revealed, or revealed in, like, the incarnation. And I think that's where I wanted to kind of, like, talk a little bit about my story and how this kind of, like, influenced me um, so powerfully. So uh, I, uh, so I, I, I've talked talk some about my story before, but um, after college, I was kind of, like, loosely involved with this group of believers who I really felt like um, was like living the gospel in like the New Testament way, the way it should be. And you know, you see all throughout out the like the world, you see like people who like claim to be Christians and all these like, but there's like corruption and all these like. But this group is really living it out, right? And in that group, they're like living in community, like living in like together, sharing everything, like a shared bank account, um, and like meeting daily for prayer and worship, right? And and I, I kind of lived uh, with that group, and then I left. 
and I had been gone for a few years, but I still kind of always saw this group. I said, you know, this, there is this, like, it is possible to really, like, live the Christian life in this, like, powerful, meaningful way, right? Um, and then, uh, actually, it was, like, on a Halloween night, I got word that one of the members of the group had taken their own life. Um, and in that group, like, very quickly, it was massive, very deep corruption that was, like, revealed. I'm not going to go, like, into the details, but uh, just, like, very obvious that there was, like, a lot of distance from, like, the things of God, right? And things were being practiced in that group that were way off. Like, uh, you know, people definitely use the word cult for that group. I don't even know how you define that thing. But all that to be said, when that, when that happened, uh, something broke inside of me. Uh, and it's like a, a light had been put out. Um, and, like, I didn't really, like... It, it had been this one kind of pinnacle thing that I, I thought, like, there is good in the world. And after, like, I saw that kind of being wiped away, I was like, there is nothing. Like, nothing is good anymore. And I had a hard time believing the gospel stories. Because in my experience in this world, I hadn't seen anything that was perfect, like Jesus. I had seen just, like, broken people all around me, broken in myself. Like, I wanted to do, the, you know, that, 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 that verse that Paul talks about, like, where I do the things I don't want to do. And the things I don't want to do, those are the things I do. I see brokenness within me, brokenness all around me, and I'm like, it seems too good to be true. Like, this story about Jesus. And um, I lost hope, and my heart really hardened in a lot of ways um, to the truth about, about um, of, of God. And I, I questioned everything. People use the word, like, deconstructed, um, right, um, and I joke that like I lost my faith for a day. I don't. I don't. You know who knows what. Uh, but um, I was. I was just. The, what really happened is that I was so hurt that I couldn't like believe in something good anymore. Um, and and I'll just go down here a little bit deeper. I think. I think without God, that is the truth in the world, right? That is the truth that everything is broken and there's no hope, right? And 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 we see that truth even in like our daily lives that like. Things that are, like, if you take a clean shirt and you take a dirty shirt and you rub them together, the clean shirt doesn't make the dirty shirt clean. The dirty shirt makes the clean shirt dirty. It's like evil is stronger than good in this world, right? And I saw this, and it's just everything was, like, crashing in. I mean, if you take, like, uh, like a live body and a dead body, like, you, like, if you, like you, you can take, like, a bullet, and, like, kill a person, but you can't, like, rub a live person on them, and they'll come back to like, life. Death seems to have this power that life doesn't have, right? Um, and that, like, honestly, like, the, the kind of state of our culture where we're at and postmodernism, that's what, like, that's where people are at. Like, um, but I think also, to some degree, that's kind of where the Jews were at before Jesus, right? They had had this time when they had King David. They were the light of the world. They were going to, like, be the be the, the people of God, a city on a hill. But since then, like, the, the, pe- the people of God, the Israelites, have like, been kind of terrible. They like, worshipped foreign gods. All their rulers have done terrible things. They killed the prophets. They've been taken over multiple times by different kingdoms, by the, the Babylonians and the Greeks. And then about uh, 80 years before, or 70 years before this, the Romans conquered them, right? And for the last 400 years, God hasn't even spoke to a single Jew, right? It's a period of silence, right? The last prophet Malachi had like spoken 400 years before this. So we have this like, period of silence. And I just feel like the Jews, like, they were just like, could it possibly be real? Like all these things were said, like and all throughout the Old Testament, there's all these prophecies of this Messiah coming, right? Um, to come and make things right. To like, 
to restore the, the, the temple and um, that he would um, like fill the, the knowledge of God would fill uh, the earth as like the waters cover the sea. And they had all these like amazing prophecies. But there's like I can just see the Jews thinking there was plenty of opportunity for the Messiah to come. There have been so many times it would have been so good for the Messiah to come. And he hasn't. Like, could it be real? There was actually a prayer in the first century. It's like a common Jewish prayer. It's, oh, that, oh, that I would see the consolation of Israel. That was like a cry that the Jews, Jews said in the first century. It's like a very common prayer. It's like, oh, that we would be comforted, right? Because obviously, like, the implication is like, they were, like, not comforted, right? Um, right? And I feel like kind of my story, um, like, the story in some ways of, like, where our culture is going, this, like, post-Christian, post-modern world, um, and the Jews is kind of like the same place. And that is where the incarnation steps in, right? That's where Jesus steps in. Um, and for me, it was like the one thing that kind of like broke through, right? Um, broke through all my like hard-heartedness was seeing this man who is unlike anything that the world has ever seen, um, right? Um, I love this quote. This is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. is like a Christian who died um, in the Holocaust during World War II um, for the sake of the gospel. Um, and I, I'll, it said, he says, Only the humble can believe Jesus and rejoice that God is so free and so marvelous that he does wonders where people despair. Um, that he takes what is little and lowly and makes it marvelous. And that is the wonder of all wonders, that God loves the lowly. He's not ashamed of the lowliness of human beings. God marches right in, and he chooses people as his instruments and performs his wonders where one would least expect them. God is near to lowliness. He loves the lost, the neglected, the unseemly, the excluded, the weak, and the broken. Um, I, love, I love that quote. Um, right? Um, and it shows that God has revealed this part of himself that we like, didn't know was possible. Um, there's another, another uh, like, more like 20th century theologian, Karl Barth, who says that this much is certain, that we have no theological right to set any sort of limits to the loving kindness of God, which has appeared in Jesus Christ. Our theological duty is to see and understand it as being still greater than we had seen before. Like the revelation of, of who God was in the Old Testament, it was good. God is holy and loving. But now, it's just like, what? He's so good, right? And we're, we'll, we'll go that in a second. But I wanted to take just a second. So, you know how, like, we just got through the election season. We're, not, we're definitely not going on that rabbit trail. But uh, we just got through the election season, and, like, people in general, we all say, oh, I would never want to be president. That would be terrible. But secretly, we all think we would be the best president. Like, uh, you all know this is true. You think, man, if I was president, I would really do these, like, um, I could really like, do these amazing things. Right? I would like pass these laws that would help. I would we'd, like go and defend people in these countries. Like I would be so great. Right? We kind of like, secretly believe these things. I, uh, I used to always. Well, I'm not gonna. Uh, so, um, so um, the thing is, like, there's one person in all of history who literally has had all power, both spiritual, physical, political power, and that's Jesus. And what did he do with the power? He didn't use it. He didn't like employ it to like take over. He gave it up so that he could like relate with us in our sufferings and like save us from them, right? And I say that to say that like the humility of Jesus, even for those of us who are like have been Christians for a long time, it is still so shocking and counterintuitive that that we like think we understand it, but we really kind of don't. Right? I can say like humility is the, is like this highest virtue, but then I go home and I'm like, 
with my wife like 10 minutes later, and I'm like, well, I had the kids for five minutes. It's your turn, right? Uh, because, because I really don't understand the gospel that deeply. I really don't believe this thing is true. I don't really see how deeply Jesus has overturned the entire structure of all of the universe, right? Um, and so um, I just got lost entirely. With uh, so, um, you know, in... in uh, there's this one type of like educational model called classical education, and it says instead of just trying to like you know teach kids like facts and then test them on it, the purpose of classical education is to teach like students what is true and good and beautiful, and it's this idea that if we like have this foundation for knowing what is good, like everything else can kind of like come along because again kind of like kind of like those the secular historians, it's all about your assumptions about what is truly good, right? Um, and so. I feel like here in the incarnation, God is like redefining what is good. Is it just holiness? Is it just being powerful? Like, no. Humility. This is the first time in all of history that humility was really seen as a good thing. I want to look at a couple um, quotes from, there's this author who is a secular historian, right? He's not a Christian. Although I think actually since he's written this book, he says he's like potentially becoming a Christian, right? Um, but he's a secular historian, um, and, and he wrote a book just kind of like tracing like where all the things, human rights, where did that really come from? Who can really, really credit that to? Uh, and and, and it, it essentially like his like summary is like Jesus. Like none of that would happen without Jesus. We've had terrible Christians all throughout the centuries, probably like right here being the first one. But, um, but Tom Holland, this guy, he says, familiarity, familiarity with the biblical narrative of the crucifixion, and I would argue also the incarnation, has dulled our senses, right, of just how completely novel, how unique a deity Jesus was, right? Christianity is the principal reason why, for, like, by and large, most of us who live in, like, the Christian or post-Christian societies take for granted that it's nobler to suffer than to inflict suffering. We see, like, these, like, Disney movies where people, like, suffer, and, like, that wouldn't have existed if it was without Jesus. People never thought that before Jesus, right? Uh, it's why we generally assume that every human life is of equal value, and, and, and this guy, again, this is, like, when he is not a Christian. He says in his morals and ethics, he's learned to accept that he's not Greek or Roman, but he's proudly Christian. Not because he had accepted Christ, but because said he was, like, saying... That, Roman and, and, uh, and Greek thought, it like prized strength. And in, in, in Christian thought, it's like for the first time, humility is made beautiful. Right? And he has another quote in that same book. He says, uh, he's talking about like some of these like ancient like, Greek and Roman sources. The heroes of the Iliad, favorites of the gods, golden and predatory. Right? Their whole like, thing was they were like, taking over other people. And that's how they were shown to be great, because they like, dominated others. They, they, they scorned the weak. They said weakness is a terrible thing, right? Um, they scorned the downtrodden. So, too, um, even though Julian had paid all his honor to philosophers, they had like essentially said weakness is a bad thing, right? Um, the starving, they deserve no sympathy. If you had sympathy for people who were beggars, it was seen as your own weakness, and it was a bad thing for you, right? Um, beggars should be rounded up and deported. They, like, if you had pity, it risks undermining a wise man's self-control. Only fellow citizens of good character who, through no, no fault of their own, had fallen um, on like hard times, they might merit assistance. Right? The only time you could really help someone who was weak is if like they were really good people, but like you know they had been struck by lightning or something like that. That's the only time maybe you should help them. But even then, probably the reason they got struck is their own fault, right? This is this this idea we've been we like swimming in this like world of like Christian thought, and we like don't realize how novel Jesus is, right? Um, so 
Um, something else. Uh, all right, let's continue. So all that to say, I think I think all of this shows right that um, that there's this new revelation in Jesus that was new, that was different, and uh, that is I think directly tied to the gospel, right? That that there's it's almost like there's two sides of the gospel. One side is like the same side we traditionally hear that like Christ came to save sinners, but why? It's because God loves us in the midst of our weakness, right? That's I think that's the other side of, this, of, of that same coin, right? And that that's like kind of how God like tricked me into like being moved by the gospel again because I saw the beauty of Christ and I was just like undone in this time of hard heartedness. Right. I think the same could be said for um, for the Jews in some senses, although some some didn't obviously like uh, like submit to God. Right. So um, let's 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 continue. So we're going to go to the next section um, in 13 through 15. It says, "Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom His favor rests.' When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, "Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about." Right, and so if you're like wondering, maybe like we're making like too big a deal of of this passage, uh, too big a deal of Jesus' birth. We can't like possibly like say that this is that important, right? Um, here we see that it definitely is that important, right? Anytime we see like heaven, like we get a glimpse into heaven, essentially what we like should think about that it is it is, it is a reflection of what the earth should be, right? It is, it is a reflection of, like, if, like, earth was, like, made right, this is what it would look like. And, and, I, and I, I could be wrong about this, all, like, maybe theologian people here. Uh, I don't believe there's ever a time in the entire Bible where the entire heavenly host breaks into reality, to our physical reality. I think this is the only time, right? Which, at the very least, this should be setting up red flags. This is massive. Right, I mean, literally, this is like the turning point of history. Right, uh, this is the year zero. This is like is like Jesus's uh, entrance into humanity. Right, this this literally uh, is the change of history. And here, I think we see that. Right, um, one one translation of that, uh, you know, it says it says that the heavenly host appeared with the angel. One translation, a few different translations actually. Oh, whoops. Uh, a few different translations say it's the the heavenly armies. Really like that idea. The heavenly armies suddenly appeared. Right, um, and so. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna be like slightly extra biblical here for a second. I'm just gonna like speculate on what might have been happening. I don't know if this is true. Probably isn't. But when I kind of imagine this, the way I think about it is, I wonder if the angels knew. I wonder if they knew that Jesus was going to become a man. Right? They experienced God at the creation. They said it's beautiful. They experienced God all throughout the Old Testament. Everything going on, uh, and kind of the way I imagine it. And again, this like. Maybe it's my interpretation, is that they're just kind of like doing their angel thing, worshiping God for how good he is. And then suddenly, Jesus, who was there, there from the beginning, like, is born as, as a child, right? And they're like, wait, what? No, this, this isn't right. Like, that's like their first thought. And that's, again, why like Muslims and Jews, they reject Christianity because they say, like, God would never become that low, right? It's, it's offensive to them, right? And it kind of is. It should be a little bit offensive that God would come so low. Right, and I think the angels were in heaven, and they're like, "Wait!" And then it clicked for them. Right, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, God is so good. He is so kind that He would give up all of His pride and come to man." And I think they just like 
burst through like whatever like separates the heavens and the earth, and they just said glory, glory to God, right? They just like they couldn't help it because it was it was so beautiful. And again, I don't know if that's exactly what happened. Maybe God sent them, right? But uh, that's kind of how I imagine. I feel like that's like potentially should be like I don't know. Tell us something about ourselves because when we read the incarnation and we're like. Oh, yeah, that's a fun story, like a cute little baby or something. I think maybe we're missing something, right? Um, okay, uh, I'm going to continue because I'm going long when you try to land the plane, as Keith says. Um, so uh, in 16 through 20, uh, this is the last section, it says, So they hurried off, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen, which, uh, which were just as they had been told. Okay. Uh, so, kind of hesitate to give, like, action steps when really, like, or, like, kind of, like, application, when really the, the application is, like, to be amazed by God. Right? And if I give you a bunch of steps, it kind of, like, at least for me, I can tend to be, like, a legalistic person. I'll, like, stop really looking at Jesus and start thinking, oh, well, I need to do this, 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 this. So I kind of hesitate to give steps. Instead, what I want to do is I just want to say what they did. This is what they did after they had seen all these things. So, um, one is that it said, uh, if we go back, this is actually in that last section, it said that when the shepherds left, the shepherd, or when the angels left, the shepherds said, let's go check it out. So I was like, first step, go check it out. Like, if this doesn't, like, mean something to you, like, go check it out. See if it's, see if you, like, really find it, like, does something for you, right? Because, uh, you know, as Christians, we believe this is, like, the essence of, like, the greatest story ever told, like, and that all other stories are just derivative of this one, right? Um, so, uh, and actually, C.S. Lewis said that, uh, that every other miracle that ever has happened in the Bible is all just an extension of the incarnation. Once you have the incarnation, it's almost, like, inevitable, that, that Christ is going to die for us. Because in the incarnation, we see his great kindness that leads to the cross, right? Um, so like Christmas leads to Easter, right? The, the humility of the cross, the humility of Jesus leads to his sacrifice for us. Um, so one, I say, check out Jesus, right? Um, and I just want to, before I like move on too quickly from that, like seriously, like, if this doesn't like mean much to you, if you're a believer or not, um, go like, take time and like engage in this story. Think about it. Pray about it. Ask God to like reveal it to you, right? Like re- actually do it. This isn't just like some dude talking, right? This is your life and it matters. So really engage this stuff, okay? Um, the, the next thing that they did is it says they spread the word, right? Um, and I think it's it's, it's uh, as Christians a lot of times when we like maybe like experience God, we can have lots of reasons why we don't share the word. Be like, oh well, I don't want to like brag about my personal experience. Or, uh, I don't know, I just don't know if that's appropriate in that setting. Or, I don't want these people to think that I'm a weirdo, which they probably do already, so get over yourselves. Uh, but, um, so, but, like, here we see, we see the shepherds. That's the first thing they do after they see it. And I just, again, uh, I feel like I'm, like, probably the least of these, right? I know there's, like, a lot of people in this room who are just, like, gifted evangelists, and I am not one of them. Um, but... Um, I think a lot of times when we remove um, sharing our story from from the equation of what it means to be Christians, it's like it's like Christianity is like this like thing. And there's like let's say four instead. There are four there are four legs, right? So one would maybe like be experiencing God. One would be like spreading the word. One would be well, 
experiencing God, let's go with like, praising and glorifying God, spreading the word, and then like being transformed by the word, right? And a lot of times we like think that spreading the word is like kind of independent from the other ones. Like we can kind of take it or leave it, right? Because those other ones are all like, kind of personal in America. We're like so individualistic, right? Um, but I, I think that at least in my life, I found the times when I really like, receive something from God and I don't share it, I kind of miss out on all the other parts. I don't like experience God as much. Like I don't experience like the fruit in my life of transformation as much. I don't glorify God as much. And it's meant we're meant to have that aspect of it. And so I'm not again. I don't want to be legalistic and say go do these things. But when God does something in your life, like we're meant to share it. That's like the natural expression. And when we hold it in, it's like if you're trying to hold in a sneeze, it just gets worse. <laughs> things just you know you know. Um, so. Um, then, then we see we see Mary treasuring these things, pondering um, these things in her heart. And I think that's like kind of like the where that sanctification we were talking about happening. Like I, again, I encourage us, just like you know, all throughout the Bible, we see like God like encouraging His people to think about God when we like our go when we like lay down when we arise to think about these these good things, right? Um, and I think when we do that, it'll like change us. Particularly in this story, uh, I think it'll prevent us from like judging others. When we see God going to the shepherds, when we see God loving the lowly, it's a lot harder to judge, like, I don't know, our sister-in-law who, like, takes the last piece of really good food to Christmas. I don't know, you know, fill in the blank for you. Um, so, um, and then uh, it says it says that they return to life. They return glorifying and praising God. Um, and, and maybe I'm, I'm biased because, like, I am not, like, a full-time minister here, and I'm, like, so I'm a teacher, right? Um, but I love that he says return. The shepherds aren't like, we've seen God, so we've got to go start a church. We've got to go do all this stuff, right? It says they just return to their daily lives, but it kind of implies their life has been transformed, so they do what they were already doing, but in a way that, like, glorifies and gives praise to God. So um, I think I think sometimes we like feel like guilty or like the, the highest the highest form of Christianity is being a full time minister, um, and um, I think here we say that's not God didn't say go do all this stuff. He was like let them return to being shepherds, right? Uh, but doing it in a way that really honors and praises God. So um, I'm gonna end there. Let me let me pray for us, um, and then uh, I think it's probably too late to do stuff. I don't know. Uh, yeah, let me let me pray for us. Um, Jesus. We love who you are. We love the revelation that you bring. Um, we love your heart. and God, honestly, we would have done it a different way. Um, but we're so glad that we weren't in charge, that you're in charge, Jesus. We love that you laid down your life, that you did something that no one else could, that um, no one else had even like ever thought of. Um, I love your humility, Jesus. Um, we're just so grateful that you meet us in our brokenness, that you're not ashamed of our weakness. And so, God, we'll, we will uh, we'll cling to that. We, we, uh, we, we admit that we're weak, that we're broken, that we need you, that we, we have lives that are messed up. They're full of sin. They're full of all kinds of like weird stuff. We haven't like obeyed you, um, right? But we're so grateful that you meet us right in the midst of that. God, I pray that um, during this Christmas season and, and, and just throughout our lives, that that truth would, would just go deeper and deeper into us, Lord. We know that, that maybe even, we, even if we understand the concept in a general sense, there's like certain areas of our life where we like haven't 
haven't like brought that in. Um, and so I ask God, even right now, that you would bring to our minds, if, is there something, is there a way in our lives where we're like rejecting uh, who you are, Jesus? We're, we're rejecting like this new structure that you bring that turns everything upside down and says that weakness is where we find strength. God, give us the, the courage to, um, to hear your voice, to listen and to obey it. Thank you for, for showing us your truth. Uh, we love you, Jesus. We love, we love your incarnation.